Well, good morning and welcome again, everybody. My name is Dirk, the preaching pastor here at Encounter Church, and we're so glad that you're here joining us for part two of the series that we're in called Asking for a Friend. Remember the idea behind the series, in case you're just joining with us and uh, you're visiting this morning, welcome. If you're just joining with us, the, the idea behind the series is that we all have these questions, and maybe you think they're silly, or maybe you think you're a little embarrassed to ask them, because maybe you think after coming to church this long, whether it's long or short, you should know these answers by now. So what we're doing is we're saying, hey, you don't have to ask the question. We'll ask it for you. We're asking some of these tough questions about the faith for you so that you can at least have some answers at the ready in case somebody asks you, or maybe... Or maybe you're not actually asking for a friend. Maybe, you're, maybe the friend that you're asking for is you. That's okay. We'll ask them for you. In part one of the series that we kicked off last week, remember we started off with this really, really big question. That is there really a God out there? Right? And we, we kind of like pointed out some of the gods that maybe don't exist. Maybe the gods that are worth walking away from. And then we took a look at some of the clues about why there, there might be a God out there after all. So you can go ahead and check it out online on the website if you want to catch up to speed. Uh, but for this morning, we're going to kind of take that big view of like, is there a God out there? And, and start to like funnel it through and to say, okay, let's talk more specifically now about the God of the Bible, the God of Jesus Christ. And the question that we want to ask this morning, I think, is a simple one about Jesus. Some of these claims that he made, the question that we're getting to today is, is Jesus the only way? Now, this is, this is one of those things that I'm not going to lie to you, church, that this is, this is a pretty confrontational sort of question, that this is one of those questions about the exclusive claims of Christianity that is probably not going to make you a ton of friends at the job site or the office that you're going to head to tomorrow. Because chances are most of us, what we want to do is to try to like harmonize these things, harmonize these different beliefs, whatever you believe. What we want to do is to try to figure out a way so that we can all kind of be right. What we want to do is to say, hey, maybe Jesus isn't the way. Maybe Jesus is a way. Maybe we want to live our lives and start to believe that Jesus is the preferred route to get to God, but he isn't, of course, the exclusive route to get to God. Because most of us, we kind of come from this place, this sort of like ingrained belief system in the culture that we're in, of saying getting our way to God is sort of like getting our way to like anything else. And so, so we think about things like Getting to God is a little bit like from here, getting to Granville, right? And so we, we start to like unpack that a little bit and say, hey, you pull out of the church parking lot and, you, and you're going to get to Kalamazoo Ave and you're going to have a choice whether to turn left and take the highway M6 and it's easy, breezy, 70, 80 miles an hour. It's going to get you to Granville in about eight minutes. Or you could go right and pull out and try your hand at 44th Street or if you're brave, 28th Street. And you're going to get into a couple of fender benders along the way, right? It's not going to take eight minutes. It's going to take 80 minutes because you're probably going to lose your mind once or twice on the way there. You can get to Granville that way. It will eventually lead you there. But of course, M6, the highway is the preferred route. And so sometimes what we do in our faith, in our religion, our expression of spirituality is we take these belief systems that we have about God, about whoever he is, and, and we start to say, well, maybe he's the preferred way instead of the exclusive way. Maybe, maybe Jesus is a way instead of the way, right? And honestly, that is going to build you a lot of rapport. That is going to make you a lot of friends on the job site, in the classroom, in your house, 
with your circles. Except for there's a problem. Because eventually somebody's going to open up the Bible. Right? And they're going to start to read some really, really un, unfriendly sayings in there. Like, like one of them from, from one of the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Uh, somebody who lived with Jesus for three years. So, somebody who saw all the, all the works of Jesus. Somebody who listened to all the public teachings of Jesus. And, and somebody who no doubt Jesus pulled off to the side and said, Hey, this is kind of what some of all of that meant. This is somebody who knew the teachings and the life of Jesus better than probably almost anyone else. And when he was called in under oath to testify to what he had seen, the risen Jesus Christ and the claims that Jesus made, this is what he said in Acts chapter 4. Again, he's under oath and he's testifying before the high court in the land in Acts 4. It says, in verse 12, that salvation, this is Peter writing now, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Listen to the exclusive language that's used. No other name. And just to make sure that Peter isn't just making this up on the spot. He's not just testifying to some unpopular beliefs that he just kind of came up with out of thin air. He's basing this off from what he has seen, about what he had learned from Jesus Christ himself. In John 14, verse 6, when Jesus is answering a question, and he says that, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And just to make sure that Jesus is like, I didn't stutter. You heard me correctly. He adds this little tag onto it and says, by the way, no one, no one comes through the Father except through me. And listen, church, like that is a statement that is so exclusive. That is a statement that is so bound not to get you friends or followers, but to lose you friends or followers because it flies in the face of everything that like, like culturally we in the developed 21st century world hold dear. And we're like, you cannot build a society or a culture around these exclusive beliefs about religion because they're going to come together and they're, and they're going to butt heads, right? And it's going to cause all kinds of this unnecessary conflict. So part of me, right, we want to pull back from that and we want to say, listen, let's make some friends along the way and let's temper that language down a little bit. Jesus is a way, the preferred way, potentially, easy breezy highway. But of course, 28 Street will get you there. Of course, that is a way to go. And so what we kind of want to do is like back up, big picture right now. I want to step back and I want to just identify a couple things. Because it's pretty easy to read a, a couple of Bible passages like this that are written, you know, by all accounts, thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago. These things are ancient, ancient words. Don't lose sight of that. And it's pretty easy to look at some words like that and say, well, listen, I'll listen. A lot has changed since then. I mean, culture has moved and shifted so many ways. Peter, there's no way Peter knew or could understand what it is like to live in the developed Western 21st century world today. I mean, that was such a different culture way back, way back then. And even for Jesus' part. I mean, Jesus lived in a day when everything was so much simpler and so much easier. There's no way that they would have known what it's like to live in, 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 in the modern developed world today. I mean, listen. We have all kinds of religions like gathered. Some of us in our just same neighborhoods, in our friend circles, there's all kinds of different beliefs. And so it's easy to like fall into this way of thinking to say there is more religious diversity in the world today than there has ever been before. 
And I just want to, I want to push back on that just a little bit. Because I think, I think that Peter knew, I think that Jesus knew on a very human level what it was like to live in a hugely pluralistic and multicultural society, potentially, potentially even better and more than many of us today. Because what they had operated in is the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had a way of doing things. They would go in and they would conquer different countries, different peoples, different lands by force using the military. And they would steamroll into a place. And then instead of setting up their own exact system of how that space should be governed and how the people should worship there, when Rome went into a place, they used this philosophy or this policy that historians tell us goes something like this, you do you. <laughs> Don't write that down. That's not actually what the historians said. Uh, but, but that's more or less like what the end result was. The, the Romans came in and they're like, listen, like you can do, you can worship whoever you want to worship. That's okay. And so maybe it was a geographic thing. So the, uh, the, the people in Ephesus, modern day Turkey, uh, so in Ephesus, they had the God of the Ephesians, right? That's just the, the God and goddesses that they had. The Jewish people in Israel were able to worship in the temple, their own Jewish God. The Egyptians were able to worship the Egyptian gods and goddesses. And they were allowed to do that unencumbered because everybody knew it didn't matter what you believed. All of these gods are sort of included in what they call the pantheon of many of the gods, all under living harmoniously under one roof. And there's all the Roman gods in there as well. And so it was, it was hugely important to the way that the Romans governed that everybody was allowed to worship whichever god or goddesses, however many there were, that they wanted to. You're fine. In fact, they went a step further. And in that pantheon, they would set up statues of all of these gods and goddesses just so that everybody knew. And it wouldn't have to be geographic. Just that everybody knew it could be thematic, arranged. There's a god of traveling, god of war, goddess of fertility. They included them all in. And they made all of these statues. And they put them under one roof. Simply to indicate, look, all of our gods, all of our deities, all of our goddesses, they live harmoniously under one roof. Maybe as you, the followers of these different deities, maybe you can live harmoniously under the banner of Rome as well. And I just want to point out that there was actually a little emblem on that pantheon, the roof of the pantheon, an emblem of Caesar himself, indicating Rome covers all of them. So subtly, I'm just going to set that right there. Subtly, they're saying, listen, all of these gods operate and you can follow whichever ones you want or not to. And that's fine. As long as we know that they all operate within the universe of Caesar himself in Rome. Okay. They lived in a hugely pluralistic culture. They knew what it meant to go to work and to interact with people of a different faith. Peter understood that I don't think that you can read the book of the Bible called Acts. It's the Acts of the Apostles. I don't think you can read the book of Acts without coming away with this, like one of the central tension points that, that those first apostles faced was arrest and harm and persecution because, not just because they're introducing another God, Jesus. People were fine with introducing more gods all the time. No, the main tension point wasn't just another God. The tension point was the, that God's claim on exclusivity is that Jesus came and he brought this message that, no, no, it's not just that I'm a way, I'm the way. It's not just that I'm the preferred way, it's actually that I am the only exclusive 
way to God. And that did not win Peter very many friends. And that, as a warning to you, anybody interested in following Jesus, may not make you a ton of friends either. And so one of the things that I want to do this morning is to actually try to help prepare you for some of those conversations. Because you're going to go to a job site, you're going to go to your house, you're going to have lunch with somebody, you're going to go to the office tomorrow, whatever it is, and you might encounter somebody who's hostile towards that, that belief of exclusivity. And they might sort of start to press you. I don't have a problem with you going to church. I don't have a problem with that worshiping of Jesus. I don't have a problem with Bible reading. But when you start to say that he's not just a way, but the way, that's when I start to have a problem with it. That's when you're all alone by yourself. So what I want to do, church, is to sort of like help you have that conversation. And if I'm going to be really real with you, some of you may be doubting that yourself. And you may be like, I don't know, man. I just, I, I'm here and I love Jesus and I'm totally into this thing. But I'm with it all the way up until that point of that exclusivity thing. And I'm going to keep coming to church and I'm going to keep worshiping God. But, but listen, I mean, he's still just a way for me. He's the best way. He's the M6 way for me. I don't want anything to do with 28th Street, right? He's just a way for me. So I want to kind of help you like process some of this through. Okay, so if you're a note-taking kind of person, we're going to do this on two levels, all right? As we say around here, that uh, dull pencil beats a sharp mind and remembering the truths that God tells you every day. Uh, so if you're going to write a couple things down, this is going to happen on two different levels. The first level is like a super, um, a, a superficial level. Honestly, this is where we hang out most of the time. Uh, this isn't like really the in-depth kind of stuff. This is just, it's just superficial. It's kind of where the conversation is all the time. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you think about it long enough, but this is where we are. Okay, that's where we're going to start. And then we're going to end on a level that I think is what it's actually about. That this other thing is actually just a smokescreen for the core of the issue. This is the iceberg that's 90% covered by water that you don't see, but it impacts the conversation and the relationship dramatically. So you can be around for the superficial part, but don't forget to also mentally be around here for the actual part here at the end. Okay, first of all, that superficial part. And this is important because this is kind of where 90% of the conversations hang out. It's not really what the issue is about, but it's at least what's going to be presented to you. So you should be able to have an answer and kind of think and process through some of these things. Most of the time that people have an objection with the exclusive claims of any religion at all, including Christianity, but we're going to use that one as a pretty good example because it's the one that I know most about and I got the microphone. So anytime... People have an issue with the exclusive claims of religion, faith, spirituality. It usually has to do with an unwillingness, an unwillingness to assent to any kind of exclusive claim at all. I'll give you an example. A parable or a proverb. I'm not really sure what the difference is. But it's, uh, they're both in the Bible, so I should figure that out. Um, it's a, it's a proverb that uh, comes from, Leslie Newbegin wrote about this. He's a, India, he's a missionary in India uh, a little ways back. And it's just something that he encountered like again and again and again. He's confronted with this dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And so he had to kind of come up with a reply to it to, to connect with his people. But the proverb went something like this. A proverb has a, you know, a bunch of people, three guys, they're blind. And they go out in the field and they find this structure, this animal, this, this thing, whatever it is, right? And the first guy, maybe you heard it, he kind of goes up to the side of it and he kind of like feels it. And he's like, whoa, you know, it's this leathery hide kind of thing. And he's like, this thing, this is massive, right? Grabbing onto it, he goes, this, this must be some kind of great wall barrier, right? 
Another guy, blind guy, comes up to the front of that thing, and he starts like grabbing on. He goes, what is a wall? That's not a wall at all. It's, a, it's writhing, and it's wiggling, and it's alive. It must be a snake, right? A third blind guy comes up and grabs onto the, to the tusk of this thing, this long ivory pointy end. He goes, no, 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 this isn't, this isn't a wall. This is definitely not a snake. It's not living at all. In fact, in fact it's a weapon. It's a spear, right? And so each guy has a claim on what this thing is. It's a wall. No, it's a snake. No, it's a spear. Okay, and as the proverb goes, it says, like, listen, New began in any other missionary, anybody else that holds to an exclusive religion like Islam, Judaism, and you can find up a whole bunch more. Anybody who has one of these things, listen, you're a blind guy and you've got to hold on something. We're not going to devalue that at all. And you think that it's a wall, but it's not a wall. You think that it's a snake, it's not a snake, but it kind of feels like a snake and we're not going to fault you for thinking it's a snake. It's certainly not a weapon. What you have is an elephant, right? And we can see that because we can see, and of course, it's an elephant, but again, Again, you all have this sort of like equal hold on what the truth is. And so we're not going to devalue anything at all. You're right based on like what you can see and perceive. You just don't see and perceive the whole picture. Okay, that's like uh, an old school sort of parable. But, but this comes out in a whole bunch of different ways. Right? This comes out in a news release. A few years back, uh, the, one of the deans at Stanford University had a very, very difficult decision to make. And anybody in this kind of position, my heart just kind of goes out to him because I do not envy a position like this. But, but he had to deal with a group of students who are on a street corner in Stanford University in California. And, he has, uh, and they, were, they were proselytizing, which is an old school word. They were witnessing to, they're sharing their faith with some of the other Stanford students that are walking by. Right, and they're, I guess, somewhat disruptive. Anyway, he had to make a call based on what to do with them. And to an extent, like, I totally, oh, man, this is like, this is a jam that somebody's in. And I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't fault him for, like, having to, like, make them kind of disband, right, and, and go away. Honestly, if I'm, if I'm honest with you, like, half the time that somebody's, like, on the street corner, like, trying to do that sort of thing, they kind of feels like they're doing more harm than good, like depending on how it's done. So, so like I get that impulse of saying like public university, we're not allowed to do this, right? Something's got to happen. But it's like the rationale that's used. The dean at Stanford University said that they had to disband and disperse because as we all know, every religion has equal value. And we shouldn't be elevating one, ours, anybody's, above the other. And you can kind of see what's underlying that rationale there, that philosophy there, is, is that this understanding that we're all blind men grabbing on to a particular part of an elephant and nobody has a better perspective or a better view than another. And that's kind of where the conversation tends to go and that's sort of like where it trails off. Like, of course, you can't have an exclusive hold on the truth. Nobody can. It's all, we're all blind men crabbing on to an elephant. Except one. Except one. And like a first-year philosophy student would be happy to point it out. Everybody in that parable is a blind man grabbing on to an elephant or a part of an elephant except the guy telling the parable, except for the guy who can see clearly enough to say, oh, listen, I know you're blind, you're blind, you're blind. You can't see anything that you're grabbing onto, but I can see the whole thing. I can see exactly what this is, even though there's no possible way that you could ever see it because you're blind, remember? 
That the dean of Stanford University says all religions are equal except for the one that I hold to, which is no religion at all. I know that perspective of the metaphysical, that perspective of that what's spiritual or not. I know that my perspective is actually the meta-grand perspective over everybody else's. That's why I have the authority to tell you that you can't make an exclusive claim on faith Because I already have the exclusive claim on faith. You see what I'm saying? In trying to demonstrate that you're not allowed to do something, he has to take a viewpoint that does the very thing that he said you're not allowed to do. Like, you don't have to think about this thing for, like, all that long to kind of get past the, like, wait a second. Who are you to say that we're not allowed to make exclusive claims? Like, you just made an exclusive claim. So at the very least, we should just dialogue as to, like, which one is correct or which one is best or which one is whatever. But we, we listen, we all make exclusive claims all the time. That's what I'm saying is the smokescreen. That's what I'm saying. When it's like, listen, we, we want to talk about this thing with the elephants or the all religions are equal and have value and all this sort of stuff. Like, that's fine. That's all well and good. That's just not what the issue is about. It isn't about that at all. We don't, it's about that simply because we don't want to do the harder work of taking a look at the 90% of the iceberg just under the water that we can't see. Or as I'm going to call it, the elephant in the room. The other one, though, not the first one, with the blind men all around it, right? So Pew Research has been doing this, uh, these studies uh, over uh, religion in America for a long time now. And Pew Research found in 1970, when they polled people, they found that 5% of Americans uh, are, are spiritual, are religious uh, nuns, right? They, uh, they, they don't adhere to any particular, val- any particular uh, religious system uh, or spiritual convictions at all. They would identify as like, nothing at all. 5% in 1970. 40 years later, in 2010, that number had risen from about 5% to almost 25% percent through a phenomena that sociologists call the rise of the nuns, which kind of sounds like a low-budget, like, horror movie on Netflix. (laughs) Spelling makes a difference. N-O-N-E-S, not N-O-N-U-N-S. Okay, Um, so people are, like, walking away from religion, and and it's not, we're not walking away from religion because of some sort of, like, I don't want to make exclusive claims. Not making an exclusive claim, as we just found out, is an exclusive claim. They're walking away. Many of us are on the edge of walking away from organized religion, not because of exclusive claims, not because they're wondering about what what religious system has the best answers and provides the most solutions and way of life. No, no, no. They're walking away because of this. Religion used to be seen as providing some answers in a very chaotic world. But today... Many people view religion as the problem in and of itself. That if we could just get rid of it, if we could just root out religion, we'd all be better off. I'm a religious nun because it's all damaging and it's all dangerous. And listen, if you're looking for a soundbite from me today, I'll give you this one. To an extent, I don't disagree. Like, I'm a Christian pastor. And I kind of like look at the, at the religious systems, including and the major ones, 
And I look at this and I'm like, you know, there is a part of this that is true, that religion is partly to blame, is even dangerous. And I think I'd stand behind that one. It kind of goes like this, and this is, this is actually what it's about. Everything else, like I said, smokescreen, this is the 90%, this is the iceberg that we do not want to address because it's uncomfortable. And it goes like this. What religion does, religion gives us a vantage point to look out from. Religion, if you have the best one, or even if you have the only one, doesn't matter. If you have religion, you have a privileged position that you can see things and you can see farther than other people who inherently don't have the best one or don't have the only one, don't have a privileged vantage point. You have a superior perspective. That's how religion works. You have the passcode. You have the capital T, truth. You have a hold on what's real and what's not. You know what to believe and you know how to live better than anybody else. And so it isn't a big step to go from a superior vantage point to separate out away from the rest of the world and, and to like pull away and to kind of create this separation. Many of us, we do that with church. We're all kind of gathered here of, of like mind or at least some sense of curiosity. And we pull away from the rest of the world. We, we separate out. And it's a scary thing. It's a dangerous thing. Once we start to separate out, which is fine in and of itself, but it's so incredibly easy then to look at our group who has all the right answers and all the best way to live and to look at that group who necessarily, by definition, doesn't have all the best answers and doesn't have all the best ways to live and start to feel something new. That superiority starts to breed contempt. And it is a scary small step to move from contempt to violence. And that's a problem. So last week, Saturday, a gunman walked into a Jewish synagogue and opened fire. And he killed one and injured four others. And the scary part about this thing is that he had a surprisingly coherent seven-page manifesto justifying his actions, believing to his core that he was right and they were wrong. And they were to blame the Jewish people for killing Jesus. And they were to blame for manipulating and controlling the media. And they were to blame for all of these other evils and ills in the world. And, they, and he believed to his core that, that it actually glorifies God to do them harm. And that's the thing we don't want to address. So we can talk about different viewpoints all the day, but, but we don't want to address this thing where superiority breeds contempt, which breeds violence. And this really hit home for me. Because I find out that the, the, the church where this young man was really, really involved in, the pastor of that church, he's a good guy. The pastor of that church actually did his theological education at the same, at advanced level, at the same place, the same graduate school that I did mine. And so I'm kind of reading through this thing. And obviously the pastor is just like beside himself. He can't even believe. He knows this kid. He knows everything that happened. 
And he never saw it coming. And there's a part of me that is like, it could be anywhere because religion, as long as we hang out there, religion breeds this, this, this separation, which breeds contempt, which breeds potentially violence among some. And that is not okay. It is so critically important, not just to the advancement of the kingdom, but it is so critically important for us to be able to function in the public sphere. It is so critically important for like the nation to continue moving forward with, with, Christian, with Christians moving among it, that this whole thing doesn't happen. It is so critically important that at the center of all of this, we do not keep a set of beliefs and religion at the center of it all, which breathes superiority and separation and contempt and violence, at the center of it all isn't a religion that says that we have the right answers and they do not. At the center of it all must be a person and his name must be Jesus Christ. Amen? I'll tell you why. Yeah, right? I'll tell you why this is so critical. Jesus, we put him in the middle. Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, he runs into the same exact thing, church. This isn't new. He runs into this in Luke chapter 9 where he's doing ministry to the, to the Samaritans. And there's all kinds of bad blood with the Jews and the Samaritans, right? It's a belief thing. It's also like racially tinged, right? Jesus is doing ministry. He's knocking on doors. He's like slam, slam, slam. Nobody's interested in what he's pitching. And that's fine. He gets done. The disciples come up to Jesus and they do not like the Samaritans. So they are primed and ready. And the only question that they ask, is it now? There's a prophecy. Is it now? Jesus, do we rain down fire from heaven on the Samaritans now? And it breaks the heart of God. And he puts them in their place. Not the Samaritans for shutting the door. No. Because he's not breeding superiority. He puts his disciples in their place and says, never. No. It is not what we're about. It is not what I'm doing here. I did not come to do that. I did not come to live by the sword. It is not what I'm about. I came so that anybody who would come to me, whether it be a Syrophoenician Canaanite woman, or a Roman centurion in the Roman army, or whether it was a woman, a Samaritan at a well that he met, any, or the Jewish people like these disciples, anybody would come to me. And I would gladly give my life for them. See, this is the way of Jesus as opposed to the way of religion because religion breeds that superiority. But the closer we follow in the footsteps of Jesus, it breeds sacrifice, not superiority. Because what happens when we follow Jesus? If you're following him closely, you'll start to realize what you have to offer God in this world. And what you'll start to realize is that what I have to offer God is actually nothing more than my own guilt, than my own shame, than my own fear, and my own failures. That's the only thing that I can lift up and hand over to God. What is there to feel superior over in that? The closer you follow Jesus, the more you recognize the need for him in your life. And the closer you follow Jesus, it doesn't make you more superior, it makes you more sacrificial. And there's a very, very well-known story that puts this very well. And there's also like a hidden underlayer that I think that truth really pops out. 
The greatest, one of the greatest missionary stories of the 20th century was by uh, a guy named Jim Elliott to the Alca people in Ecuador in uh, 1950s-ish. He and four others, so five total, were doing mission work. We're called to mission work for these people who are notoriously unreached and violent. After, after making kind of tertiary uh, side interaction for a little while, he decides they're going to make direct contact with these people. He lands his plane in the river and they talk, they communicate as best they can. They consider it a success and they fly away. They come back later for a second meeting. And on January 8, 1956, some warriors came out from the tribe and killed all five of them. They pushed their bodies into the river and let them flow away. Now, what makes that one of the most well-known missionary stories of the 20th century? Isn't that a missionary gave his life for the cause of Christ? It's that their wives and then their grown children would continue that work. One of the men who died was named Nate Saint, and his son, Steve, would continue that mission work, eventually alongside them building schools and even a hospital. Steve had the privilege of baptizing the man who murdered his father so many years back and adopted that man into his family as a surrogate grandfather to his kids in the place of his deceased father, Nate. Now, that's the power of the gospel, the power of sacrifice, not superiority. But the hidden part of that story that isn't often told is actually they found the bodies caught in some weeds miles up the river. When they uncovered the bodies, they found those five men that day that were murdered. They were armed. And not a single shot was fired. Five days earlier, they wrote in their journals, Jim did, that they made a promise that they wouldn't use their weapons on the tribe people. Nate Saint, who was murdered, his son, Steve, commented on that publicly. And he said, the rationale behind that, the idea behind that was that my dad knew that if he died, he had the hope of seeing Jesus someday. And he believed that if the man opposing him died, he might not. So he said, my dad was simply trying to do for them what Jesus did for me. Listen to me, religion may breed superiority, but Jesus, Jesus leads us to sacrifice. Who are you going to sacrifice for? And what are you going to sacrifice? I invite you to stand up. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, Lord, I want to pray for that person in the room today who's going to head into a difficult conversation, maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, and have to defend these wildly unpopular beliefs 
about exclusivity and the claims that you made, Jesus, about being the way, not just a way. Uh, God, I ask that that message of love, that message of sacrifice that you made on the cross, I ask that that stands for itself loud and clear. And that's actually what this is about. God, I pray for that person who's maybe on the fence right now and just trying to grapple with that idea about what it means to follow you, Jesus, and only you. God, I ask to give them the courage uh, to look at those convictions, those statements that you made squarely and for what they are and to accept the whole gospel of life and not just selected pieces of it. God, I ask I ask that you lead all of us into a life of greater and greater sacrifice. In your name we pray. Amen.